Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Patrick Spiro, author of Frontier Rebels. Patrick Spiro, author of Frontier Rebels, The Fight for Independence in the American West. You write in your book, in order to understand the origins and ultimate success of the American Revolution, we must pay the same attention to the Black Boys' Rebellion that we do to the Stamp Act protests. Why is that? Uh, I think historians, and even the American public more generally, have often focused on the events that were happening in the seaports uh, when they understand the coming of the American Revolution. So we know about the Stamp Act. We know about the Boston Massacre. Uh, we know about the Tea Party. But we don't know about what was happening outside the seaports. And there were similar issues with the British Empire. Colonists were having similar issues with the British Empire outside of these cities as those that were living in Philadelphia or Boston or New York. Now, the nature of what they were complaining about was very different. And that's why I, in this book and in other works that I've done, I want to pay attention to what the, those issues were. How were they different from those that were happening in the seaports? And what do these differences tell us about the reasons that they wanted American independence? And how did that shape the new nation that they gave birth to? So what was their, who were they that you're writing about, and what was their beef with the British Empire? Sure. So the, the Black Boys' Rebellion, um, for me, are kind of a symbol of larger issues that were happening on the American frontier um, in the 1760s and 1770s in the lead-up to the American Revolution. And the Black Boys were a group of frontiersmen uh, living in western Pennsylvania uh, near what is today Sidling Hill for those that travel on the turnpike and uh, know the uh, uh, rest area and exit. Um, uh, in what is today modern-day Mercersburg and McConnellsburg, um, or McConnellsville. Um, uh, and the black boys were uh, opposed to the British Empire's policies towards Native Americans. Um, after the Seven Years' War, or what we sometimes call the French and Indian War, um, and then a subsequent uh, war uh, called Pontiac's War, in which Pontiac, a Ottawa Native American leader, uh, had united a pan-Indian movement to oppose the British Empire and fought for two years from 1763 to 1765. After these wars, uh, these frontiersmen had become uh, uh, very opposed to Native Americans. Um, they could not accept them as peers or as colleagues. Uh, the British Empire, on the other hand, and, and many people outside the frontier, saw Native Americans as potential allies, as people that maybe could be integrated economically with the British Empire. And so the empire had a vision for how the frontier was going to operate. It was going to be an area in which people and goods flowed freely, in which there was stability and peace that would lead to prosperity. Now, this vision uh, was really diametrically opposed to what uh, the black boys and others felt. Who were the black boys? So who were the black boys specifically? And why uh, were they called the black boys? Sure. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, so the black boys, they were uh, a, a group of frontiersmen uh, led by somebody named James Smith. Um, they were, uh, I believe, uh, heavily uh, Scots-Irish. Um, they were called uh, the black boys because... Um, in 1765, there was a pack train of goods that was heading out to Fort Pitt to enact a peace treaty with the Shawnees in Delaware. 
And the idea is this peace treaty was going to open that road of trade and, and people uh, and establish peace. The black boys were opposed to this uh, peace treaty happening, and they were in particular opposed to the trade goods that the British Empire were bringing, potentially arms and, and, and ammunition. And so they dressed as Native Americans, and they charcoaled their faces black and destroyed this pack train of goods uh, near Sidling Hill. And uh, James Smith, their leader, is one of the most interesting figures in this uh, whole story. Um, Smith was a um, uh, Scotsman born probably in Chester County, uh, but he moved west, uh, potentially with his family, potentially on his own, and settled near uh, Mercersburg, where his uh, brother-in-law, William Smith, was a leading uh, figure, a justice of the peace. And in 1755, uh, Smith uh, had enlisted um, to help uh, build Forbes Road. Um, his brother-in-law got him a, a, a position uh, clearing the, the forest for Forbes' uh, expedition west. And he was captured uh, by Native Americans and spent several years as a captive, um, uh, traveling throughout uh, uh, the Ohio River Valley. Uh, he was adopted into a family. And then eventually in 1760, he's returned to Pennsylvania, uh, to his community, where uh, he realizes his uh, love had assumed that he had died and had married somebody else. Um, but he then becomes a uh, militia captain during Pontiac's war. And um, one of his uh, uh, approaches to militias was that they should uh, he had learned Native American uh, tactics in war, and he thought that they were very effective, and that, in fact, colonists should learn them and use them themselves during warfare. And so that's why the black boys uh, dressed as Indians and used uh, some of the methods that he had learned uh, in Indian country. Now, jumping ahead uh, to, sort of to the end of the book, you talk about uh, James Smith tried to persuade George Washington and the, the colonial army to use similar tactics. Yeah, Smith was a huge proponent that this uh, style of warfare was particularly suited for uh, America. Uh, and so during the uh, American Revolution, uh, Smith is, uh, enlists again uh, in the Continental Army, um, and he uh, convinces the Pennsylvania Assembly to write a, an official uh, letter to George Washington advocating that Washington create a regiment uh, that follows Smith's tactics. Um, Washington didn't buy into it. Uh, he said, this doesn't seem suited for the warfare that we have on the, uh, the, in, in which we're fighting against the British Army. Um, and so Smith uh, dejected, uh, returns actually back home where he can form his own militia in, in uh, the style that he likes. Doesn't George Washington usually get credit for having done the more guerrilla tactics in the Revolutionary War? Well, uh, it was still within uh, what we might think of a Western styles of, of warfare. Um, Smith uh, advocated um, dressing as Native Americans. Uh, we know the black boys and potentially his earlier regiments would um, actually communicate through ways that were similar to Native Americans. Uh, and the way that they uh, kind of um, uh, 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 positioned themselves was different than what we might think of as uh, the kind of Continental Army um, style. So why did James Smith do what he did? What was he up to? What did he want? What did Smith want? Um, that's a uh, really interesting question, and I think it changes over time. Um, so if we're thinking about the Black Boys' Rebellion in 1765, which I think is a huge moment for the British Empire in the coming of the American Revolution. Um, 1765 is the same year that, Stamp, that the Stamp Act is enacted, and the urban seaports are in flames protesting this act. James Smith and the Black Boys there's no evidence that they were even aware of the Stamp Act. I mean, I'm sure they were, but none of their complaints, none of their writing, there was no protest against the Stamp Act. Their issues had more to do with 
um, British policies towards the West. Um, the British wanted to contain settlement. Uh, they wanted to uh, enact uh, uh, treaties with Pontiac and other Native Americans that would create alliances and trading partnerships. And Smith, uh, first off, many frontiersmen saw the West as theirs, um, that they were going to conquer it, and that the British Empire was standing in their way. And so that was one issue. Uh, the other issue was this idea of an open road with Native Americans. Um, they, uh, Smith and many of his neighbors, had come to view Indians, I think, uh, through racial lenses, in which they viewed Native Americans as inherent enemies. Um, they did not see that they should uh, benefit from the rule of law uh, and the protections of government. Um, there are incidences of mass murder happening uh, against Native Americans at the same moment. And so this pack train of goods heading west kind of symbolized the British Empire's vision for the west. And Smith and the black boys wanted to stop that vision from happening. Now, there's somebody you write about, George Krogan, mm -hmm. who was, he was the instigator of the wagon train, was it, that, that starts the starts Yeah, the book? So, so the story is, uh, George Krogan is one of the most fascinating figures of 18th century Pennsylvania, and maybe the British Empire more, more generally. Um, so Krogan is a highly successful trader. Uh, he's stationed outside of Carlisle, Cumberland County. And during the Seven Years' War, his um, uh, relations with Native Americans had him appointed, he became appointed as a colonel um, because he had such strong relations with Native Americans. They, the hope was that he would be able to maintain those relationships during wartime. Uh, and after, war, after the war ends, he's appointed uh, deputy superintendent of Indian Affairs. And so he's the person that is kind of on the ground negotiating with peace treaties with Native Americans. And so in 1765, Thomas Gage, who's the commander-in-chief of the British forces, uh, gives Krogan a small allotment of money and says, use these funds to help enact a peace treaty. And the way peace treaties work in the 18th century is that after um, words are expressed of you know, mutual respect and an understanding of the nature of this alliance, uh, goods are exchanged to symbolically enact what is said uh, at the uh, treaty. And so Krogan realized that he needed trade goods to sh show Native Americans that they were, in fact, allies and partners now. And so, uh, but he realizes that Thomas Gage's 2,000-pound allotment is not large enough to truly express the British Empire's feelings. And so he, on his own, raises money and uh, creates this pack train of goods that had perhaps as much as 30,000 British pounds of goods heading west. And to put that in some perspective, um, it's esti one historian estimated that there may have been enough shirts in this uh, pack train of goods to clothe half the male Native American population in what is called Indian country. Uh, there are tons of uh, goods going west. Um, it, the pack train was enormous. Uh, it may have been the largest uh, trade uh, uh, mission ever organized in Pennsylvania, maybe even the whole British North America. It's, it's massive. They actually run out of so much shirts in Philadelphia that they have to hire uh, a special a women, a group of women to actually start making shirts on spec because they don't have enough in Philadelphia. So they've run out of shirts in Philadelphia and Krogan is at the center of this. Now, the thing about Krogan is he often also had his own self-interest in mind as well. You describe him as a schemer. Yeah, um, you know, and, and schemer it can mean many different things. Um, it uh, is often negative, and I think Krogan historically has been viewed uh, in a negative light, and I think there's reason for that. But at this moment, 
you can't ignore that Krogan also has the British Empire's best interest in mind as well. So Krogan feels that if he doesn't bring enough goods out, then the ability to establish peace that the British Empire wants so desperately will not happen. Now, what he also does is, in raising all of these additional funds and all these additional goods, it appears that he also had a personal interest in the sale of goods that are going to co coincide with the opening of trade. And so here is Krogan, who is serving the British Empire's interest, but also serving his self-interest. And um, one of the reasons I, I, uh, that I see him as a schemer is that we still don't precisely know the details of this deal that he constructed. Um, it's all very vague, and um, the records are not clear. And it's, the reason that they're so ambiguous is because I think everybody at the time realized that what Krogan may have been doing was technically illegal. <laughs> because, he did, uh, because he didn't actually have the authority to trade so much material. So that was his motivation to go above and beyond what, uh, what Gage had given him to, for this treaty? Yeah, a combination of, um, at the peace treaty, realizing that they needed to show uh, a greater um, uh, expressions of friendship, which is what the goods symbolized, but also realizing that after the open road was created um, through this peace treaty, that Native Americans would then expect trade to begin immediately. And if he didn't have enough goods to trade, then they would feel like the treaty wasn't real. Would the black boys then have been opposed to this treaty with the natives? Well, that's the, 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 the problem. It's, uh, the, it's unclear precisely what they opposed. And I think there is a spectrum. Uh, it's clear from a lot of petitions and writings that many people on the Pennsylvania frontier um, did not want trade with Native Americans to happen at this time. In fact, there are petitions and letters in which they're advocating that no trade happened with Native Americans because they really wanted to subjugate Native Americans. And then there are others who um, perhaps they believe that trade should happen, but they want um, different terms of peace. Right? Um, on the frontier, I think most tended closer to, ha to, to that spectrum in which they you know, had a very, uh, what's called Indian hating. Um, they did not trust Native Americans, and that really infuses, I think, the black boys, um, even if there are some within the black boys who perhaps were more open to trade um, than, than, than others. Now, the further east you go, the more open people are to trying to find ways to maintain peaceful and fair relations with Native Americans. Um, but those that are on the ground, uh, closest to where these peace treaties are happening, are also, somewhat ironically, the mo most opposed to these peace treaties happening themselves. And this is what really frustrates the British Empire and George Krogan, where they say, look, we're trying to create peace so that you can be prosperous, so you don't have to live in fear. Peace is in your interest. And yet those that live in this neighborhood don't see it that way. Well, we've, on this program, we've talked about the Indian raids that took place during the French and Indian War, mm -hmm. uh, Indian raids on settlements. Was any of that going on at this point after uh, the French and Indian War, after Pontiac's Rebellion? After Pontiac's Rebellion, there are not, um, and there is peace. But during Pontiac's Re Rebellion, Western Pennsylvania is the site of incursions. Um, during the French and Indian War, um, the area that the black boys are inhabiting is one of the most violent areas of contestation. Um, and so that is influencing the culture that is living there. The, the settlers who lived in this part of Pennsylvania, and well, can you define it for a minute? What, what's the area? Sure. It's uh, uh, called the Conococheague. Um, it uh, refers to uh, the, a, a creek that runs through there. Um, 
There's a, uh, it, it's the uh, Appalachian Mountains uh, run through there. Um, there are a series of valleys, um, and that's what, uh, where many of the settlements are resting. Um, Mercersburg is pr probably the most populous at the time. Um, uh, that's where William Smith, James Smith's uh, brother-in-law, uh, is stationed. That's where it seems to be most of the uh, legal proceedings are happening. That's where there are a number of taverns. Um, it's close to uh, Fort Loudoun. Um, so this is kind of the, the largest area of settlement. But then if you go over a ridge, there's uh, McConnell's Tavern, uh, which is a smaller uh, community. And this is where uh, the Black Boys attack actually happens in that vicinity. Why would they have settled there in the first place? I mean, what, what did they do to, oh, to pass well, the time? Well, sure. The, the, the land was fertile. Um, it was really fertile land. So um, farming. Yep. Uh, it was uh, uh, opportunity. Um, James Smith's life, I think, uh, captures um, you know, a process that's happening in Pennsylvania. And that process is that um, as uh, eastern areas, Chester County, I, Smith is born in Chester County in 1740. At 1740, Chester County has a lot of ample farmland. Um, it is being the area that is uh, colonists are settling at the time. But then by the 1760s, um, Smith, who was born in Chester County, is looking elsewhere for opportunity. And that's what these fertile valleys uh, really beckon people like Smith. So you write about, your book sort of starts with the, the attack on this wagon train mm -hmm. that is heading west. First of all, where did it start, the wagon train, and what route did they take? Sure. So, so the wagon train begins uh, really first in Philadelphia, where Krogan amasses this great okay. surplus. And then it heads out to Krogan's uh, house, uh, which is just north of Carlisle on the Susquehanna River. There's something called Krogan's Gap, which is uh, where uh, he lives. But then, and it's not entirely clear why, but I have my suspicions. Uh, the pack train, the, the head of it, Robert Callender, uh, chooses a alternative route than what might be the most obvious one. Uh, that is, the easiest way to get to Fort Pitt is along Forbes Road. Um, it is a clear art, uh, uh, path that has been cut through the woods, goes straight to Fort Pitt, which is where the peace treaty is. Now, Callender chooses to go south, avoiding Forbes Road and traveling uh, closer to the Maryland border, which is how he ends up in places like Mercersburg. Um, now, the reason he does that, um, I suspect, as the black boys did, was because his pack train was larger than what it was supposed to be. And so by avoiding Forbes' road, they're actually avoiding inspection from British soldiers uh, or stopping at British forts where they might be questioned. Um, uh, and, and so that's uh, the, the route they take. And the reason why the black boys suspect they took it, and I suspect maybe the truth as well. Now, they, uh, the, the black boys then attacked this wagon train? Yeah, so as soon as the uh, uh, wagon train is heading uh, south on these alternative routes, all of these colonists start to approach Calendar and others and tell them to stop. They ask to inspect the goods. They say if there's any contraband or, or if there's any ammunition that they want it to be seized and held and they, they don't uh, uh, believe that that should be permitted. And so you actually see an escalation of these protests the further west this pack train heads until they hit Mercersburg, which is where William Smith is and others, and they really confront the, uh, the calendar and others there. At one point, somebody threatens to blow their brains out. Uh, one of the colonists threatens to blow, blow the, uh, one of the driver's trains, uh, brains out. Uh, and so they go to Fort Loudoun, uh, where the, the commandant there um, uh, says, look, uh, I think this is fine. It's got to go forward. Um, it's clearly part of the British Empire's interest, even if um, your, the, the choices you made might not be the most appropriate ones. Uh, they, he does uh, seem to chastise the, the uh, calendar and the pack train. 
And then uh, the next day, uh, uh, they are attacked by James Smith and the Black Boys. Were any British soldiers involved in the attack? Uh, involved in the attack, no. Um, they were later, uh, after the pack train is destroyed uh, in the evening, I mean in the, in the uh, morning, they, the, um, the drivers of the train return to Fort Loudoun and say what has just happened is one of the greatest destructions of British goods. Um, this is, I mean, when you think about what happens and you compare it to the Tea Party or the Boston Massacre, what's happening in 1765 on the frontier is just as audacious and uh, uh, rebellious as what ha later happens in, in the seaports. So they show up at the British fort and they say, the colonists have just, just destroyed this pack train of goods intended for a British treaty. And Grant and others are up in arms. Um, they see that this is an assault on the king's property. And so Grant sends out a, uh, Grant is the commandant of Fort Loudoun, uh, he sends out one of his sergeants with a small regiment to start figuring out what happened, to uh, collect any goods that are destroyed, and also to just kind of um, figure out who did this and, and what happened. And so the British military all of a sudden turns into almost a policing force, uh, which only makes matters worse, uh, because colonists could live with the British military by them if it was for their defense. But the idea that the British military might become a police force that is inspecting their houses, interrogating them, that's not what the British Army is supposed to do. Um, and so this uh, use of the British military only escalates tensions between the black boys and the British Empire, where before they're really targeting traitors, they actually start to then target the British military to say, you don't have the authority to arrest us, you don't have the authority to seize our property. Um, and it actually leads to two uh, sieges on Fort Loudoun, that the black boys form uh, over 100 people, maybe as much as 200 people, lay siege to Fort Loudoun, um, which again is a far more audacious act of colonial uh, kind of rebellion than anything that's happening in the seaports. What was Fort Loudoun? So Fort Loudoun is a small um, fort on what was a chain of communication of forts uh, that connected Fort Pitt uh, to Philadelphia. And so Fort Pitt was where the wagon train was going? It was, it, yep, and that's where the peace treaty was going to happen. And along Forbes Road, there are a series of um, forts, Fort Ligonier, uh, Fort Bedford, uh, that were constructed in order to help uh, maintain easy communication from east to west, which is why that would have been a much smarter way for the pack train to have gone. So did the colonists feel like they were attacking, rebelling against the British? Did they feel like they were a part of the rebellion that was going on in the East? They did not feel like they were a part of the rebellion going on in the East. I mean, I, I think they, these are, and that's why I begin the book by saying we have to pay attention to the West as well. These are really two parallel events uh, that, that are happening. Now, they merge in the 1770s, but at this point, they are completely disconnected. Now, their issues are, have to do with the British Empire and the way, and the British Empire's policies towards North America. That, they share that common concern about the empire and how it's going to function in North America. But the issues that are causing this uh, discussion are very different. And so for the black boys, they are saying, you don't have the right to regulate us. You should not have a policy of an open road with Native Americans. And they take up arms to try and enact their vision on the ground. In the same way that colonists in the seaports are forming the Sons of Liberty to say, you don't have the right to tax us. You don't have the right to regulate us. They create boycotts. They attack stamp collectors. So they're, kind of, they're, they're, they're doing similar things, but the reasons are very different. And I think that's what my book wants to contribute, that there is a Western imperial crisis going on 
on the frontier, that Pennsylvania is the locus of a lot of this. And really what's at stake is the future of North America. Whose vision of North America is going to be realized in the 1760s and 70s, in this post-Seven Years' War and post-Pontiac's War world? You say in your book that you, in doing the research for this, that you traced the, the path of the wagon train. And what do you find when you do that sort of thing? Well, that was a great personal experience uh, where after I had been doing a lot of research, I reached out to the Fulton County Historical Society to ask if they had any materials there. And I met through that a, a great uh, gentleman who invited me out to see the terrain. Um, and that really is important for any historian to do, um, to understand the lay of the land, but also to meet uh, community members, many of whom were aware of the Black Boys Rebellion in a way that people outside of this community are unaware of it. But to them, it's a very living and real event. It's a way that they can connect to the American Revolution. Um, they debate its meaning among the community. Um, and it was really interesting to see this vibrancy that was you know, contained in this little pocket. But if I were to travel to Lancaster, if I were to travel to Reading, if I were to travel to even Pittsburgh, they, probably, they may not know of the Black Boys. And certainly if I travel to Boston, they will never have heard of the Black Boys. You say, say in doing this around Fort Loudon, more than a few residents told me that the American Revolution started here. Mm -hmm. So why isn't it more famous? I, I think it has to do with the way our understanding of the American Revolution has been constructed by historians and by institutions that are stewards of the past. Um, what I mean by that is that historians, the first historians to really write the history of the revolution were generally based in the seaports. The seaports were also the home to printing presses that churned out all these pamphlets that captured the debate over the British Empire that was happening. And really this influenced the view of the revolution. Um, the, and I think it still influenced historians today, although to a lesser extent. Um, but a lot of the black boys, I would say 95% of the black boys' material are in manuscripts. There are manuscripts at the Historical Society of Pennsylvania, at the Clements Library, and at places in between. Uh, Clements Library is in Michigan. And you really have to dig into these manuscripts, uh, and, and that is where you can start to construct things like the Black Boys' Rebellion. And the second piece of it is, is the institutions. So in Boston, there's the Freedom Trail. In Philadelphia, there's Independence Hall. Um, there are museums in, in Philadelphia, all of which are commemorating the Revolution. And generally, the Freedom Trail is the history of the Revolution as happened in Boston. You know, Independence Hall puts the Revolution as happening in Philadelphia. And so even our public consciousness, we think about the uh, revolution as really the Sons of Liberty and as an urban seaport phenomenon. And the West is really ignored. If, if you go to Fort Loudon today, what do you see? Oh, it's a great, um, it's, it's, it's a great little uh, <coughs> place. Uh, there, there was a community effort to uh, excavate uh, Fort Loudon. Um, there is now a uh, uh, partially state-supported uh, fort there, uh, Fort Loudon. They've reconstructed the fort itself, which for me was 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 eye-opening because when you see uh, forts as they're drawn uh, on diagrams uh, in manuscripts and even in printed material, they seem very uh, strong, sturdy, and large. And in your mind, you think a fort will be that as well. Um, I, when I went out there, I was surprised at how small it was um, and how easy it would appear to have been to, to scale. Um, and it helped me think about the black boys and, and, and why they might have felt comfortable laying siege to it. Um, and outside of it is a, a small house that is dedicated to James Smith and the black boys to try and tell the story of what happened at Fort Loudoun. Were they well known at the time? Like was James Smith a folk hero or a terrorist? Or 
did people not know about him? <clears throat> well, James Smith was very well known in his community. Uh, he goes on to serve in a lot of different offices. Um, the black boys were certainly well known within uh, colonial society, especially in Pennsylvania in the empire. I mean, if you destroy this much material and then lay siege to a British fort, um, William Johnson, who's in charge of Native American relations in the North, he's Krogan's boss, uh, Thomas Gage, the commandant, uh, I mean the commander-in-chief of all North American forces, the governor of Pennsylvania, uh, Benjamin Franklin in London, uh, people in uh, the Lords of Trade who oversee um, uh, the, the North America based in London, they're all aware of the black boys um, at the time that it happens. But then it fades. Um, it fades because other events uh, happen and really it's, it's largely forgotten until the early 20th century when there's a brief moment in which it kind of comes back into the public consciousness. Uh, there's a uh, famous, uh, somebody who was a very popular uh, novelist in the uh, early 20th century, Neil Swanson, actually writes an account of the Black Boys, a work of historical fiction. And that is optioned by, I believe, RKO, but in any case it's optioned and turned into a movie in which John Wayne stars. Um, but then again, it fades away. Um, and so uh, what was exciting for me was to try and recover this story, but also to put it in a larger context, um, to put it in the context of the British Empire, but also to put it in the context of Native Americans and their views of what independence should look like in North America as well. James Smith wrote his memoirs? Yes. Uh, so Smith, uh, in 1799, publishes uh, his memoirs, uh, which recount um, uh, his time in captivity recount his time as leading the black boys, and also uh, uh, talks about his involvement in the American Revolution. Smith goes on uh, to, uh, Smith's life is, is very much the story of the American frontier. He goes on to move to Kentucky. After that, it's created as, as a state. He serves in the legislature there. And so Smith's life, um, in some ways, is the, the enactment of the black boys' vision for uh, the future, um, one in which it's an expansive uh, nation uh, heading west, colonizing new areas, which is very much, a, you know, diametrically opposed to the British Empire, who wanted to contain and constrain settlement, who wanted a more stable, um, uh, uh, oceanic-focused uh, uh, colonial system in which Indians were a trading partner. And actually, um, <clears throat> the British Empire had carved out an area they called Indian country uh, with the idea that they were going to uh, stop settlement, at least uh, for a period of time, into that area. So you really can understand just how much Smith's vision and the Black Boy's vision um, happens as a result of the American Revolution. Was his memoirs published? Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Can you find them? How did, how did you uh, them? Well, how did I find them? That's a good question. I think just uh, the searching that historians do. Um, what's nice is with Google Books, you can read uh, editions um, that are now free and available um, uh, by searching, uh, uh, you know, uh, James Smith, a remarkable uh, account, because um, he led a, a life uh, that was remar remarkable. So that's the title of the, the book. Uh, when, so when the Black Boys laid siege to Fort Loudoun, first of all, how many soldiers were in there and, and what was their aim? to lay siege to this fort. Yeah, so there was a small regiment there. I, I don't know the uh, specific number, but it would have been in the uh, 20s uh, to 30s. Mm. Not, not, not many. Um, it, it, was a very, it is a small fort. Um, <laughs> uh, the estimates that uh, Grant put on uh, the black boys was that they may have had 200 black boys surrounding the fort at the time. And what did they want? Well, so when that British army went out to uh, immediately after the black boys' attack, they 
um, seized a number of uh, black boys and their guns. And they, uh, ultimately, uh, the black boys wanted to secure the release of these men and the guns. They secure the release of the men, but the British army continues to hold on to the guns, uh, believing that they're contraband and that they could be used actually to upset the peace that the British Empire is trying to establish in this area. So that leads to a second siege of Fort Loudoun in, in November, at which point um, they do uh, turn over the, the arms. Was anybody hurt in that siege? Uh, no. Uh, there were shots fired, uh, but there were no deaths or uh, major injuries in, in, in uh, these events. Traitors were attacked and others were harassed. Now, meanwhile, back in Philadelphia, the, the Penn family is still the proprietors. They still own all the land. Would, would the, the, the black boys and the, the settlers around there have paid rent to the Penns? So the way uh, the proprietary, uh, proprietary government works, or at least it worked in Pennsylvania, is that if you owned your land, you owed the Penn family what was called a quit rent, which was an annual tax that would go to the Penn family coffers. And they cooperated with that, the black boys? Well, the Penns always felt like colonists could have been better taxpayers. <laughs> <laughs> you, say, you talk about a, uh, a debate that went on at Carlisle where John Penn, was it, went out there yeah. to hear both sides of the argument? Yeah, so, I mean, the black boys' destruction of goods uh, in March 1765 created a crisis of governing. It was a crisis of governing for the British Empire. I mean, here are these colonists trying to upset their vision for peace, but it's also a crisis of colonial governance. I mean, the, the colonial government was the one that is supposed to enforce this type of law. They're supposed to arrest people, try them in colonial courts, and, and, and punish them as, as the law states. And um, the problem was that the black boys had so much support that, including justices of the peace, who were saying what the black boys did was legal and justifiable, um, that Penn, the governor, had to actually travel out here to try and make sense of what was happening and trying to establish some sort of decorum. Because uh, you have the British officers, you have traders saying this is anarchy, we need justice. Um, black boys saying what we did was legal and just. And so Penn, uh, as governor, comes out there and, he's, and, he's, and he's, um, he, he's really in a challenging position because on the one hand, these colonists, um, he, looked, he, he needs their support as governor. Um, he's facing a lot of challenges back in uh, Philadelphia, partisan challenges. And the frontier people tend to support the governor more than they do the legislature. And so Penn does not uh, want to come down too hard on the frontier settlers or else they will turn on him as well. But at the same time, as governor of a British colony, he is ultimately answerable to the crown. And the crown is saying, these people need to be punished. And so he, uh, he meets with frontier settlers who, who explain to them why they did this and how it was legal and justifiable. He meets with British officers who say how, uh, you know, this is just a complete undermining of the rule of law. And ultimately, uh, there's a grand jury that is convened, and uh, William Smith and others are kind of brought before it. And the grand jury, which is composed of the black boys' peers, basically... Um, uh, say there's not enough evidence to uh, uh, try anybody. And so uh, nobody is arrested, uh, nobody is uh, tried. And so the black boys see this as actually validation for what they did. And in the weeks that follow this trial, they become even more strident in their uh, uh, inspection of traders. What they do is they create an ad hoc inspection regime. They're actually passports that they carried around. And any trader heading west would be liable to search 
And if the black boys said, what you're carrying is okay, here's a passport, you can keep passing, they could. But if they found something that they disliked, um, they would say, you know, they would seize it and then not give them a passport. And they were all self-appointed, the, the black uh, Essentially, boys. as far as we can tell. I mean, James Smith really was leading it. William Smith gave the legal cover. William Smith, his brother-in-law, was also the Justice of Peace. And he's the one who provided a lot of legal arguments for why the, what the black boys were doing was uh, legal and justifiable. Well, John Penn as the governor and the Pennsylvania legislature were not necessarily on the same side in this issue? No. Uh, the, uh, one of the stories of Pennsylvania, um, especially as it relates to the coming of the American Revolution, is how the proprietor and the governor, uh, who were essentially one and the same, and the legislature were at odds. Um, the legislature, uh, with Benjamin Franklin as one of its great spokesmen, uh, said that proprietary govern governments had... Uh, no reason to exist in the liberalizing 18th century British Empire. These were feudalistic, they were anachronistic. How could one family, you know, own all the land and be paid quit rents? Uh, really, there should be a royal colony and the legislature should be, uh, have greater supremacy over the governor. And so at this very moment that the black boys are happening, and if you think about all the things that are happening at this moment, you have the Black Boys happening, you have the Stamp Act happening. You also have in London Benjamin Franklin trying to convince the Crown to take the proprietorship away from the Penn family and turn it into a royal government. Um, so this is an incredible moment of crisis for governing in Pennsylvania, and the Black Boys fit right into this moment. You say in here, after the war, this would have been the Seven Years' War, uh, many frontier people harbored an almost pathological fear of Quakers, as well as belief that this group intended to harm the colony and its Western people. Mm -hmm. Did the Quakers control the legislature at the time? Well, one of the challenges of writing about Pennsylvania is how uh, uh, you're, you're kind of stuck with the language that people used at the time and then the reality that we know existed. So um, there was a Quaker party, which was a political party, that was uh, historically aligned with the Quakers as a religious group, but was not limited just to Quakers. So Benjamin Franklin, who was not a Quaker, was part of the Quaker party. Mostly because he didn't like the Pens? He didn't like the Pens, but also you know, the, the Quaker party and the Quakers themselves were, were opposed to the proprietorship and believed in greater autonomy for the legislature. And that's what Franklin believed in. Even in the 1776, after all the, uh, you know, the proprietorships overturned, they're writing a new legislature, he supports a very strong legislature. That's, that's kind of what Franklin's political philosophy is. Now what happens is that the Quakers, as a group, um, because they want to establish peace with Native Americans, much like the uh, British Empire does, they're pacifists, they're also very successful merchants. And so mixed in the frontier settlers' minds, those, you know, they're, they're separate, people living on the frontier are not part of Philadelphia's culture. They're, they're not, they, I don't think they think as sophisticatedly about the East as they could because they're so distant from it. And so what becomes conflated in their mind is that the Quakers control the legislature. The Quakers are successful merchants who are trading. The Quakers want peace with Native Americans, and they all come combined in their mind that the Quaker party are part of this kind of nefarious plot to control government in order to enrich themselves through trade with Native Americans uh, in goods like arms and ammunition, and they don't care that the frontier settlers are fighting war, are, are the front lines of a war. I want to read you something about, you mentioned General Thomas Gage, who was the commander-in-chief of the British 
troops in North America. <clears throat> in 1772, he ordered the evacuation of Fort Pitt, the strongest symbol of imperial authority, and Fort Pitt's existence may have even hindered the empire's plans for peace. Fort Pitt, Gage worried, gave unruly colonists the confidence that they could murder Indians and that the British military was there to defend them. Without it, however, they would be forced to behave. How'd that work out? Um, yeah, so this was, uh, you know, the way Fort Pitt became a symbol of the British Empire for colonists, for the empire itself, but also for Native Americans, was really interesting to me. Because um, it's it, after 1765, Fort Loudoun, uh, Fort Bedford, Fort Ligonier, there's a, sh a slow shuttering of all these forts because they cost too much. And the empire says, look, we're trying to have peace. We don't need all these forts. Let's just concentrate everything in Fort Pitt, which is a major trading center. Um, what uh, Native Americans, however, see Fort Pitt as this assertion of British empire and control over them. And so when Fort Pitt is closed, they're happy. They believe that this is a better way to establish their sovereignty, that they're going to be able to, uh, uh, you know, have greater respect for their land. And um, colonists, however, now see this military defensive structure removed and that the British Empire has now removed the protection that they were providing them. And so for many colonists, the shutting of Fort Pitt is, for them, the break with the British Empire because it means that this government that they paid obedience to, um, out of, in exchange for obedience, they got defensive protection, had now turned on them. Now what Gage said was, this is actually going to help us. And the reason it's going to help us is because without us there to provide uh, you know, protection for colonists, they can't be as unruly as they have been. You know, the fact that the British armies here has allowed them to go out and commit murders against Native Americans, even though that's not something we want to happen, because they know they can, defend, they, they can um, rely on the British army being there to protect them. And so what Gage says, and he says, you know, maybe there'll even be a, a war and it will get the colon with Native Americans. And without us there to protect them, it may actually make them more deferential subjects. And so in some ways, Gage is hoping that there will be a conflict um, because he sees Native Americans as, uh, in this area without the British Empire, as being able to uh, defeat colonists. And colonists will then say, well, okay, we'll, we'll follow the British Empire's rules without the fort there. So they tore the fort down? Uh, they, they tore it down, yes. Yeah, yeah. Did the colonists then think, okay, we're on our own? You yes. Know, that we're being abandoned to, by Great Britain. Yeah, yeah. No, the uh, the four, uh, por portions of it were sold to traders, um, uh, but they, I do see that as a moment of uh, independence uh, for, for colonists um, living in that area. Um, they say, you know, there's records in which they say, you know, the, the parliament has turned their back on us, the king has turned their back on us now. Um, was there any coordination or communication between the, the black boys and uh, that rebellion on the western side and what was going on in the east? No, and that's what interests me so much. And, and that's why I really see this as a western imperial crisis. It's an imperial crisis on the Pennsylvania frontier. But around this time that uh, Fort Pitt is ordered to be uh, closed, um, you start to see these two movements merging. Um, and what happens is the Boston Port Act, uh, or the Coercive Acts. So after the Boston Tea Party, uh, Parliament really comes down heavy on the colonists. They uh, put in a, a naval embargo on Boston. Uh, they uh, make Thomas Gage the military governor of Massachusetts, so really turning a civil government into a military one, which is shocking to many people. But many people see, more than anything, the embargo as an offensive action, as an action of the British government 
turning on its own people in an act of war, because a siege is to really starve a community, and that's the way that Bostonians see it, but that's the way other colonists see it. And so what happens is they have a, uh, the, you know, the First Continental Congress meets, they create committees of correspondence, um, and this is really where East and West begin to merge. These People from the West participated in that, in the Continental Congresses? Well, in the committees of correspondence. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they started creating committees of correspondence everywhere, and in fact, uh, James Smith involved in the one in Westmoreland County. And these committees of correspondence are a way to connect all of the communities together, so they're exchanging letters with each other, and this formally merges the East and West in kind of common cause. And at this point, they both share this sense that the British Empire has turned on them. You know, it, it, the Boston Port Act was an example of it. Fort Pitt was another example of it. And so they really unite in the sense that the British government is willing to really, uh, has removed its protection against colonists, and in fact, in some cases, it's taking offensive actions against them. When independence was declared and the war came, did it affect the, the Western part of the central Pennsylvania? Uh, yes, uh, uh, in two ways. Um, first, in 1776, there's you know this great uh, call for people to enlist in the Continental Army, and many uh, people uh, in western Pennsylvania join. Um, they're known for having their uh, long rifles and being very excellent marksmen, uh, and they join the Continental Army. Uh, the second thing that happens is that uh, Native Americans are unsure of uh, really what this revolution is going to mean for them. Um, is the British, you know, who's going to win and what does victory mean um, for the West or the, their land? Uh, and over, to, they, they begin, many are uh, neutral to begin, but it soon becomes apparent that if the American, uh, Americans win, then that vision of the West that James Smith and others had, this vision of an expansive uh, empire that aims to conquer and control land that Indians then have, um, is may, uh, may be what happens. And so they ally with the, many around Fort Pitt, um, like the Delawares, ally with uh, uh, the um, uh, British, uh, <coughs> some of the Delaware, you know, the, 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 many around Fort Pitt ally with the British. And that then creates, uh, uh, you know, warfare around Fort Pitt. Did the British supply the, uh, the Indians? Um, I, you know, I'm not 100% sure about that, but they certainly knew that they were allies. Um, some, uh, some they certainly did. Um, Joseph Brandt, for instance, uh, he wasn't around Fort Pitt, but he was uh, in New York and was clearly working uh, in close uh, coordination with the British military. Um, uh, but what really happens more than anything is that uh, colonists use this as an opportunity to actually start those invasions into Indian country. Um, and that's really what turns, I think, Native Americans uh, against the American cause. That uh, James Smith, for instance, um, he is uh, uh, given a task to provide defense um, of communities. But as he notes in his memoir, he decided to turn that kind of defensive authority into kind of offensive actions in which he supersedes his uh, orders. Um, and that's really uh, the nature of the warfare around Fort Pitt. Did any of them pack up and head off east to join the uh, Continental Army? Oh yeah, several. And that's that's one of the things that um, uh, when uh, James Smith <coughs> returns, uh, he realizes that a lot of the communities had lost uh, the, their young men who had enlisted in, in the uh, Continental Army. You say that um, Congress met, uh, I guess this was after independence, Congress met in Philadelphia alongside Pennsylvania's revolutionary government, which itself was now dominated by the frontier counties that have produced the Paxton Boys and the Black Boys. So Pennsylvania's 
revolutionary government was dominated by the people from the West? Yeah, and this is what I call the frontier revolution. Um, and it's unique, uh, uh, you know, it, it, it's particular to Pennsylvania's politics. So leading up until the revolution, the eastern uh, counties dominated that legislature I was talking about. Uh, the three uh, original co uh, counties sent eight representatives. Philadelphia sent, I believe, two. So that's 26 representatives. While the frontier counties, who had about the same population as those in the east, sent only 10. And so during 1776, as uh, these uh, revolutionaries are debating what should this new constitution look like for this new state, they give equal representation to all counties, which means that the frontier counties now have almost a two-to-one uh, ratio of representation in the legislature. And so it's through the legislature that they're able to enact that vision that the black boys had been advocating because their voices are the ones that are dominating the legislature. Once they had the majority, what did they do? They started to provide uh, offensive, uh, 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 they started providing uh, arms and ammunitions and permitting offensive actions like James Smith, which is so radically different from what the Quaker Party had advocated, even what Penn had advocated, and what the British Empire had advocated. So you really you see the culmination of this crisis that began in 1765 uh, coming to fruition in 1776, where in 1765 there are three different visions for the future of North America. There's the British Empire's vision, uh, one in which colonists are constrained. There's peaceful integration of Native Americans in Indian country uh, for trading purposes for their mercantilist uh, ends. There's Native Americans who see, uh, who are suspicious of the British Empire, but deeply suspicious of colonists and who want to maintain their sovereignty over what is called Indian country, basically the area west of what is uh, modern day Pennsylvania, to really protect that land in perpetuity. And then there's colonists who do not want to have such free and open trade with Native Americans and who do not want Native Americans to protect their land like they do. 1765 is the moment when these three things come together and it's in 1776 that uh, the British Empire's vision is clearly um, uh, destroyed. And the, and the future is a debate between that Native American vision and the colonist vision. Before we run out of time, I want to ask you about your day job. We were talking sure. about it before the program yeah. started. What is it you do? So I'm the librarian of the American Philosophical Society, uh, which means that I'm the director of their library. And the American Philosophical Society was founded in 1743 by Benjamin Franklin to, as our full title says, promote useful knowledge. And so we've been founded, uh, we've been located in Philadelphia for 275 years. Um, we have a class of members who are elected based on a career of distinguished service to advancing knowledge in all fields. We have 100 Nobel laureates, Pulitzer Prize winners, Academy Award winning directors, all part of our membership. It's uh, about 850 uh, resident members in the country, 100 uh, odd international. Uh, we have a research program that gives out over a million dollars of grants to people to conduct field work uh, anywhere in the world. So they could study climate change in Peru or uh, uh, do historical research in Michigan. Uh, we also have a publications program that's the longest continuously operating uh, scholarly imprint in North America, founded in 1771. And then we have the library, uh, and then we have meetings uh, that bring together people to share cutting edge research. And then we have the library that has 13 million pages of manuscripts. It takes up over two and a half miles of shelf space. We're the official repository of Benjamin Franklin's papers. We have the Lewis and Clark journals. Uh, we also have the papers we continue to collect of seven Nobel laureates. Um, and so uh, we uh, host uh, scholars to come to our library to conduct research. Research. We host conferences and seminars, uh, all of which are to kind of uh, breathe life into our collection, also to advance knowledge and historical understanding. So you got to hold the Lewis and Clark 
logbook, I mean, the actual book they took with them on their trip in your hands. Yes, it's remarkable. It's in red leather. Uh, it's been in our uh, possession for over uh, 200 years, and uh, it is a great honor to be a steward of that. Uh, there is one document that I haven't touched, um, and that is Thomas Jefferson's uh, draft of the Declaration of Independence that we have. Um, he, uh, after he com completed the Declaration, he sent one copy to Congress. He sent another copy to his friend, uh, uh, Richard Henry Lee, uh, who had actually proposed the vote for independence but had to return home to Virginia. And he sent it to him and he said, this is, you know, what your uh, pr proposal resulted in. Uh, that ultimately was gifted to the American Philosophical Society. We have that encased and will never be brought out of that case. And so I've never touched that, but I've held the case and it is an inspiring uh, document. Is it ever on display? It has been on display. And in fact, one of the things we have on display right now is at the Museum of the American Revolution, we have the only known oversized parchment of the Declaration of Independence published uh, around uh, uh, 17th, July 1776. There are all these copies of something called the Dunlap edition. There are, you know, a dozen or more um, in various hands. Uh, but there's only one copy of this large oversized edition. And it, we've loaned it for the first time off our campus to the Museum of the American Revolution. Now, if you, if you face Independence Hall, around to the left in the same block is the American Philosophical Society. How'd you get that real estate? Yeah, so that's Philosophical Hall. We've had that since the 1780s. Um, that was, uh, we, we, uh, we, we got that from the, I think the Pennsylvania State at the time, um, in, in the 1780s to erect our hall. And then of course, as the National Park developed, we owned that property and they allowed us, they gen you know, Congress generously allowed us to keep our property there. You own the land that is in that In that case, um, across the street yeah. is the library, mm -hmm. which uh, Congress, again, allowed us to rebuild uh, the, uh, a, a replica of the first lending library in the United States. It's a replica of the Library Company of Philadelphia. It has Benjamin Franklin and a toga on, the, on its facade, which is our signature. We own the building, but uh, the federal government actually owns the land. Now, uh, in uh, getting back to your book, um, are, are there ways America is the way it is today because of this? I mean, is there a legacy that carries through on, on how the black boys perceived independence and the British and the colonial government and the revolutionary government that carry through today? Yeah, well, one of the things that runs throughout the black boys, and indeed I think this book, is the real tension between East and West. The black boys have an extreme distrust of Eastern interests. Now, that's embodied, as we were talking about, by the Quakers, uh, but it really is, it's about merchants. It's about what the legislature is doing. Um, they don't feel connected to their government. And, I, and when I traveled out there uh, for that trip, I realized that that still persisted. The, the, I realized it because I saw James Buchanan's home was there. Buchanan was a product of this. I see James Smith and others who traveled further west. This tension between east and west, I think, has been a real part of our political culture since the 18th century um, and is still with us today. Now the Civil War, I think, uh, kind of, uh, you know, in which it's North versus South has really influenced the way that we think America's divided. But people in the 1790s were saying North and South is divided just as much as East and West. And I think when you see today some of the concerns people have about government, about Wall Street, about, uh, you know, uh, the concentration of wealth in particular hands, uh, the, uh, the concerns that rural places have about the way that their governments, uh, you know, provide for them. I think all that has been part of our cultural DNA, our political DNA, uh, since the 1760s, at least. 
Now, you have been on this program before for your book, uh, Frontier Country. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, are you working on another book? Uh, I'm trying to. I'm thinking that I spent enough time in the West and the frontier, and it's time to move east myself and to look at Philadelphia during this period. Uh, I'm not sure what it's going to result in, but uh, I've been having a great time going into the archives and discovering a lot of fascinating stories uh, just like this one. Is the American Philosophical Society library open to the public? Yes, uh, it's open to anybody that has a reason to use it. Uh, you do have to register and kind of go through a uh, process to learn about your research so that we can direct you to the correct uh, sources, uh, but we are open uh, to the public. Uh, we have a great collection of early American manuscripts, uh, Native American materials, uh, and also history of science. We have been speaking with Patrick Spiro. He is the author of this book, Frontier Rebels, The Fight for Independence in the American West, 1765 to 1776. Thank you very much. Great. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to be here again. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details. Like us on Facebook.